Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Comero. And today, after uh, the morning after Duke just kind of throttled Wake Forest, I'm bringing on a new guest, potential co-host Shane Nash. I am sure you never get anything related to like Steve Nash or anything like that. It's kind of it's kind of an interesting name. It sounds like a uh, Ultimate Fighter or something. So uh, it's uh, my first thought right there, which of course is on point. So uh, Shane, you are from Indiana. You've been a Duke fan your whole life. You want to tell me? Well, thanks for joining me. You want to tell me a little bit more about yourself, your Duke fanhood for anyone interested? I definitely get the Steve Nash thing a lot. I think there's a a wrestler with the last name of Nash too, and even a car. So I, I've heard, heard all. <laughs> but, I mean, my last name is Camaro, so I of course get the Chevy Camaro. Uh, but yeah, I've uh, I've lived in Indiana pretty much my whole life. Uh, but I've been a Duke fan since like the '96, '97 season. I remember um, this is before I really even understood basketball obviously but uh Shane Battier I saw his name pop up on the on the screen and I was like oh my gosh he's got my name that is so cool and then like a, the very next play he stole a pass at midcourt and ran down and dunked it and that was all it took man I was I was in love after that um and I was always bugging my parents to let me stay up late and watch the games but uh so that's kind of how my Duke fandom was born I guess um, and Living in Indiana, because I know me growing up in Maryland, I still like I don't actually Maryland's my second favorite team, which I've explained before on different pods. Like most people find hard to believe, especially during that uh, very interesting time, like from like 2000 to 2010, where it was a crazy rivalry, at least or at least there was a crazy feeling, emotional feelings towards each other and team to team. So uh, how was it uh, in Indiana where I know like. People were born and immediately they they are taught to be an Indiana Hoosiers fan. And you as a Duke fan, how did that come off? Well, somewhere my there's a picture of of me with an IU basketball and an IU football in my crib as a kid. <laughs> um, but um, I just I didn't really care about. Uh, I always I guess I always root for local teams. Because, um, you know, you want the basketball in your area to be good. So it's nice to see the Big Ten play well. It's nice to see Butler and Purdue and IU play well. But like I said, for me, it was it was just like true love kind of with Duke. And it just I've never had to question or doubt my, my fandom with them. I will say Maryland is a team that I probably – I probably like them less than North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> but I just remember, um, especially in the J.J. Redick years, like there were some games that were just ridiculous. Like I, I, I'd have to look it up to see it, but there was one game where I think like they had like three, Duke had three or four guys foul out of this game, and it was in Maryland, and Redick was running point guard by the end of the game because they just didn't have any players on the court. <laughs> and I, I just, man, I could not stand Maryland. But uh, I think Maryland had to set a rule that like, Anybody who started setting fires after uh, Duke Maryland games would be expelled from school because I mean it started with obviously the the miracle minute. After that, it kept like escalating, and they would just set fires like after every Duke Maryland game. So they were like they had to be like a rule like stop doing this or else you're going to be expelled. Like Maryland, uh, there was a uh, there was a I mean the hatred was real. Let's say that. Um, <laughs> are you, where you grew up, are you? Uh, 
close to Warsaw, Indiana at all? Because I know that's where they started uh, growing, growing, growing plumleys under a rock, from what I know. I grew up on the south, so the southern half of the state, but I now live in Kokomo, which is in the northern half of the state. Um, I'm not exactly sure where Warsaw is, but um, but yeah, the, it was cool to see the Plumleys go because they're from Indiana. Um, I think I want to wasn't Josh McRoberts from Indiana, maybe too. I don't yeah, know, sure but, I think, yeah, I think he was from Indianapolis. Um, so yeah, they've had a couple Hoosier guys there. Um, but yeah, and, then, and, then of, and then, of course, the uh, most famous thing, uh, Bobby Hurley somehow playing for Indiana in the movie Blue Chips, which I always find very entertaining. Well, then, yeah, I mean, the Bob Knight connection to Duke is, is sort of interesting with, with Indiana as well. So there's been a couple of uh, ties there. But, yeah, people have always they're like, how are they, you know, accuse me of being a Sunshine Charlie or whatever, because, you know, Duke is, is usually very good. And I just... Uh, jumped on their bandwagon, I guess, but it's it's really not like that. I, <laughs> I think after after twenty some years, you you would have proven yourself. <laughs> yep, and I mean I don't I don't know how old you are, but uh, the two thousand two game, I'm sure that stands out as not as either a uh, shining moment for Indiana fans, not so shining moment for Duke fans. But uh, let's uh, let's get into the current team. Um, like I said, they throttled Wake Forest, and there is a limited amount, I, I would say, that's possible to take away from that game individually. I actually recorded a solo pod that I hope everyone had a chance to listen to. It's always interesting when you record the game day of the next game because it doesn't give a lot of time. And I did that a little differently than most. Usually I have takeaways from Duke's, uh, the two games they've typically played in a week um, when I, after I record. And I say I, I go back to things that happen in the game, but mostly it's overall takeaways from certain players and aspects of the team and what I see that you can project forward and what I feel in general. George, the, with Georgia Tech, I really stuck to what I felt happened during that game. It was a little more specifics related as to Georgia Tech because of the fact that Duke hasn't played many close games, and I think it was really worth focusing in on what changed that game, how that game occurred. I kind of treated that more like almost a postseason game because, again, when there aren't games to test you out, it is worth focusing more. I mean, it reminded me of, like, uh, when uh, John, Calipari, John Calipari, when he coached Memphis back in the day, he, uh, I mean, they would, I think they played like Gonzaga each year in a home, uh, with a home and home. And, but once they got into their main schedule, they would just throttle teams by like a million. So nobody quite knew how good they were going into the NCAA tournament. It was all just random guesses. So that's why so much focus was, was paid to when they did have a close game similar to Georgia Tech. Now after Wake Forest, I can kind of go back to uh, kind of general feelings and kind of narratives, not lazy narratives, but legit narratives and player kind of evaluation and projections. So this is interesting, but in terms of Wake Forest, how did, what did you take away from the Wake Forest game? You can either go specific or in general. Well, first thing I'll say is I love the new uniforms. Those are really nice looking. <laughs> but um, beyond that, um, one of the things that interested me the most was Vernon Carey because he did not have a great statistical game and he didn't really have a great game in the Georgia Tech game either, but that's kind of 
because James Banks just kind of maybe had his number or he struggled with James Banks at any rate. But it, I was after the Georgia Tech game, it kind of made me worried about what Duke's offensive identity was. Well, let me just quickly ask: Did you did you actually hear my uh, Georgia Tech pod? I did, yeah. Okay. Um, but then, of course, in the Wake Forest game, he also they still were throwing the ball to him, and he was moving it, and the defense was worried about him. But they just, you know, they didn't need his points in that game. Um, so that was kind of interesting to see. But as I mentioned earlier when we were talking, the Wake Forest defense was pretty subpar, so it's hard to take that as like, oh, okay, well, Duke's offense is going to be fine. But uh, that's just something to kind of I want to keep an eye on going forward. You know, what happens if Duke can't shoot 50% from behind the arc and Vernon Carey's not getting shots? So, Yeah, I will say that, uh, first of all, my bad about uh, not really – because, I mean, I this year I really haven't had the chance to watch as much – non-Duke games as I have in the past, I completely forgot Wake Forest had uh, Olivier Saar. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's seven foot. He's not nearly as physical as uh, some of the uh, bigs that Vernon Carey's gone against, which I mentioned in the Georgia Tech pod, which he's, ha- which he's had trouble against. But still, you can't teach seven foot. And he has good footwork. And uh, so he's not uh, he's not a uh, Azubuki. He's not Yurt Seven. And he's not Banks. But it's still, it's worth recognizing that Kerry has, as you said, struggled at times um, against the bigger matchups he's faced. So I, I do think that is pointing out what I, I think uh, before we get into specifics uh, or before we get into kind of overall, I think it's very, very much worth recognizing. Like because I did based on everything I had seen in previous years with the with the preview I did this season on the ACC. I mean, I called Shawnee Brown Wake Forest X-Factor in the ACC season preview, so not having him changed everything. And it just makes you recognize, or at least makes me recognize, the margin for error that Duke has. When they're missing Wendell Moore, they can still get by, whereas Wake Forest, with the big three of Brown, Childress, and Saar, not having one of them, it's just, it throws off everything to not have Brown, who finished up the uh, non-conference 2000. Uh, in, the, in December, he finished up really strong with some huge games. Then I think the game before Duke, he kind of dinged up. He got dinged up, and I don't even think he was able to finish up the end of it. So it, he wasn't able to play, and it just threw everything off, and it allowed Duke to just totally blitz all the ball screens and throw Childress off, off balance, and he really wasn't able to get involved. So I think it allowed Duke to have a ton of momentum, but it's just, again, it brings up the margin for error that Duke has with Wake. You could see when they lost one player, that's it. And Duke's, they've suffered in some years when they've lost a player like Ryan Kelly, 2012, uh, when uh, they lost um, Emil in 2016. I mean, Kyrie with, with the chemistry with and then without and then with. So, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's just, it's worth recognizing how... Duke, now it's just a very different type of team this year. There's still players like, I mean, if they lost Trey or Vernon Carey or Stanley for a long period of time, I think that would have a huge effect, obviously. But there's but guys like Wendell Moore, while he's still vital, I think it, it just shows how they can still not just uh, move on without him, but move on and flourish in certain games. But there'll be others. I'm sure he would have been, been able to have a huge impact. 
Well, I, I think Duke is probably uniquely equipped to handle some of those injuries this year, whereas last year I think what we went like three and th- if you count the North Carolina game, we went three and three without Zion. And then Marquise Bolden's injury kind of hurt us a little bit as well um, from a chemistry standpoint. And Bolden's timing, I didn't think, was quite as good when he came back. But, yeah, the the injuries, uh, the, I mean, that's everyone says it's a part of the game, and that's kind of cliche. But it just, I mean, it sucks for teams because you want to see, you want to see people, you want to see your team at full strength, but you also want to see them compete with other teams that are at full strength because, you know, last night was a lot of fun, but you don't really, you know, it was awesome to see Trey Jones go crazy and score 20-some points, but you don't know. You can't take much. You don't learn much. The team doesn't learn much, and you don't learn much about the team from a game like that. Yeah, I think one thing that's really gone under the radar that a lot of uh, player quotes they come off as cliches and the questions they are asked kind of allows them to speak in cliches. But there are times when somebody really does say something that resonates. And Javin Delorier, after the Georgia Tech game, he said a huge thing is because of the K has used so many different lineups this year, chemistry across the board and being able to play with anyone else is especially important. And the fact that they don't have any one go-to guy to get buckets compared to past years makes it even more vital. So I think when he says that, it's worth recognizing in the early part of the season, there, especially with a lot of new guys and what, what he adds, yeah, they didn't have the chemistry. So while they struggled in various stretches at times, I know struggling is kind of, it's all relative, but I think as they've gained that chemistry and as everybody's kind of learned how to play with one another, because practice is very different from games, obviously. I think now we're starting to see it all of a sudden they're gelling. And it's unfortunate that uh, Wendell isn't able to be a part of it, but he'll be back hopefully somewhat uh, soon, maybe uh, at the end of uh, February. But right now they, the guys who have, who are a part of the rotation, everyone can play with one another. And that just doesn't happen immediately, no matter what the talent is. So, again, Stephen F. Austin, like, that hadn't quite been there. But now, after, like, 15 games or so, you can definitely see it. And especially, like, when Cassius came back after his injury, it took him a couple games. But I noticed that by the end of, of like, uh, BC or sometime around then, like, he started to look back to the Cassius of old. And now it's just you can kind of plug and play everyone and you can see they have that chemistry, and that has made a huge difference that I'm not sure it's quite being talked about enough. If it isn't, I think it should be. And, uh, yeah, that's why the kind of Duke is they all seem to be playing as one right now, which works great, especially on defense. Yeah, I think maybe Alex O'Connell was one of the people that struggled the most trying to get that that chemistry and that find that flow on the court with the – weird minutes he was getting, but he's been pretty solid lately. Um, I'm not worried that he's going to throw the ball out of bounds every time he catches it anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, the, the, the depth that we have this year is, is pretty impressive. I, I, that's been one of my, not necessarily a complaint, I wow. guess, but you know, there's been years where I, like last last year for in the ACC tournament, I used this as an example. Vrankovic came in and made like great plays, and Sunday Goldwire 
against North Carolina in the, in the conference tournament. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, how come he doesn't get more opportunities like that? You know, like he doesn't move it. He didn't move his feet as well on defense, but it's just like he's a smart player. Like we could use. You know, when when do you not want to put smart players on the floor? <laughs> um, I'm sorry, you're talking about O'Connell. Um, I'm so, talking about uh, Vrankovic last year. Like I've oh, always Frank, wished yeah. that that, uh, that Duke or that Coach K would would go just a little deeper into the bench, and uh, this year we're we're finally seeing it and. I don't know. Obviously, we don't know who's going to come back, but it looks like maybe next year we'll have uh, some similar depth as well. Yeah, I mean, Kay, he's he's talked about how, even in the beginning of the year, how he kind of has, has to learn how to be more um, open to more subbing. And I think that was a huge reason why the Stephen F. Austin game happened as it did, because he kind of stuck to one lineup in the second half and just never did anything. He never tried anything different. And as I was talking to you about before we started officially recording, what I say before every single season that I really hope for fluid adjustments game to game and especially within game, it doesn't happen often many seasons. So I think that Stephen F. Austin game really was a, uh, a kind of a wake up call of sorts because it reminded me of one of the Duke's losses in the NCAA tournament where it's just like nothing changes and the other team just keeps getting more and more confidence so you need to do something to kind of energize, to liven things up. Because when I think one lineup is together too long at points in time this season, there is some uh, complacency which develops, which could always be misinterpreted as, oh, they're not trying, they have no hard, all that blah, blah stuff. But I think it's more complacency, and they don't play with as much urgency as could be. So it's important to really keep searching for whatever fresh blood or whatever combos to come in to just motivate and bring energy off the bench so they never really feel comfortable. Having said that, I do think there are some times where I think guys are just pulled too early and their day is done. Like, I think okay. that's happened with Baker twice. I mean, Stephen F. Austin and uh, George Tech. I definitely agree with that. <laughs> I definitely yeah, agree. But, uh, but I do think it's important just kind of keep everyone on their toes. I mean, somebody like Stanley – who he knows he's going to get huge minutes every game. But, I mean, when, I, as soon, like, when the game occurred, I actually uh, texted uh, Ray, my buddy Ray Holloman, um, after 17-15. I was like, did I just see that correctly? Because I have AC Network and I have to, like, use somebody else's account. So I don't have DVR. I can't go back and look at stuff within the game. I was like, did he just literally stand there and not get on the, on the floor for the ball? And then kind of, like that doesn't make sense. Like this is Cassius. And Ray went back and looked. He's like, yeah, man, he just kind of, he stood and watched. And I'm like, that's not going to be good. <laughs> and soon enough, uh, Cassius was pulled. And uh, from what I hear, given a, a stern lecture. So when he came in, he was just, he was all over the place. I mean, the motivation, Cassius is already someone who I consider like the dog on Duke. And I mean that as a positive. So you just, I think that's really important. Like perhaps in uh, past years, like if someone, like Zion or RJ or Cam, if that happened with them, they wouldn't be pulled because it's just they're they're going to be in there. I think now, like to have somebody else you can put in in the meantime, or like Hurt. Hurt had some some defensive possessions where he struggled against Georgia Tech. He was pulled, but all it's worth understanding that Jack White was able to come in and provide important minutes while Hurt was out. Then Hurt came back in and played well, but 
in past years, maybe the trust wouldn't have been there to have someone like Jack White come in and provide uh, positive minutes. So I think that's the thing, being able to really hold guys accountable by pulling them if they're not doing what they have to do, but also being able to trust you have other guys that can come in and absolutely be trusted. I think that's huge. Yeah, I think uh, they could even do that with Trey Jones to, to some extent because he's had a couple games where he was coughing the ball up a lot, and he didn't really come out of those games. But now Jordan Goldwire's coming on so so strong. You know, if, if he needs rest or if he needs just a second on the bench to to reset himself mentally, I mean, you could put you could put Jordan Goldwire in there, and I think everything will keep moving pretty pretty well for the team, and then you can get him back in when he's ready. And I I, I love really love the depth that this team has this year. It's it's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something we're not used to, and I think the, the narrative that needs to stop is that Duke's going under the radar and they don't have as much talent. They don't have as much talent as the top, but it's definitely spread out throughout the team a lot more. And, I mean, even just looking statistically, they're, they're as good as anyone right now in, in terms of as a team. And I think uh, so some of what that has to do with is just the fact that they're actually running plays. And now the past couple games, Trey, he seems to have gotten his confidence more off the bounce, which just sets everything up for everyone else. And uh, what I saw against Georgia Tech, which I liked, was kind of moving the bigs out to provide more space and size. So that allows Stanley to to be able to have a, a bigger, wider lane to drive into. Because, it, I mean, as good as Kerry is and as positive an impact as he has on everyone else, still it can clog up the lane for potential uh, guys to penetrate if he's in there. And that's why Hurt can help so much to be outside as a three-point shooter, but it also allows more driving lanes. I also think uh, Georgia Tech, and Wake Forest, they played uh, the three. Besides their bigger guys inside the front line, their guards and small forward, I think they kind of played three-guard lineups. So I think that allowed Duke to play Goldwire, uh, Trey, and Cassius at the same time more. So it kind of helped play right into Duke's hands. So I think the past two games have kind of played into Duke's hands, but at the same time, they're earning everything they get. That's not to take away and even having said that, playing in the Duke's hands, as, as I mentioned the Georgia Tech pod, with 2.45 left, DeVoe had an uh, open three-pointer in transition, which could have given Georgia Tech the lead. If that had gone in, who knows how, how, what we're talking about. We're talking about everything wrong with Duke instead of uh, kind of how Duke is kind of on an incline on the way up. So it's very easy to overreact. So I think... Uh, it's important to just kind of recognize everything as a whole right now, but there's a lot of bright spots. I think as far as Duke going being underrated this year, which, I mean, they're, what, number two in the AP poll, so it's kind of hard to be underrated when you're in the top five. But um, I think, it, it, if anything, it's because they're arguably their best player, Vernon Carey. He's only averaging, what, like less than 25 minutes a game? Mm-hmm. So... I mean, if he was playing 35 minutes a game like Zion or RJ or Marvin Bagley or somebody like that, his numbers would be just absolutely insane, and then people would be stop talking about him. But I'm actually, especially this year, I'm totally fine with going somewhat under the radar because it seems like every team that is crowned the next great thing ends up dropping, ends up getting upset that same week 
So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of cool with Duke going under the radar. And I think Duke's last couple of championship teams, they kind of flew under the radar a little bit too. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with going under the radar if that's what they really are. So, I mean, I don't think they are at all. I think it's just a matter of, number one, I mean, there's two things. Number one, they don't have that guy who's on the highlights every single night, like a Zion or an RJ. I mean, they, they don't – I'm not sure if they have a lottery pick on this team. I would say no at this point, um, at least for this season, uh, in the upcoming draft. And uh, two, their uh, kind of high-profile matchups. I mean, for, like Kansas came the first game, but it already seems like forever ago. And I – every single season I say, like, the uh, Champions Classic, I, under, I understand the entertainment value. I, understand, I appreciate the entertainment value. But these guys are playing in their first game. And especially with the four teams, usually besides Michigan State, the other three teams are relying on a lot of freshmen. And it's just like, it's just random. And like, I think if the, if that's why I always say, like, how great would it be if the Champions Classic was the first Tuesday after the Super Bowl? I know it's not going to happen, but I think that would be really special to uh, see those two, those four teams in terms of after they've really gelled, it, at least. <laughs> Even if they moved it to that mid-December game, um, like I, I did, Duke didn't really have a mid-December game this year, but like last year it was Texas Tech. Um, if they moved it even to there, it would mean a little bit more because you're, you know, Kansas isn't even using the same sort of lineup. It's a completely different team. Even by the next game, <laughs> like, yeah. like is, at least I mean, if you're looking for even just. The tiniest thing that can make a difference is, uh, I think, in the first couple years of the Champions Classic, it was started in like 2012. They Duke would play like two regular season games before, so at least they had something under their belt. But just playing the first game, it's like when um, college football, like these teams that start out with like a huge game in the first game, and it's just like the ugliest thing ever. Because of course it is, and I just think that's going to happen more often than not, and teams are going to be very different from what they start out as. So against Kansas, that was kind of – I kind of throw that out the window. And then Michigan State, huge win. I'm not saying it's not. Cassius so, uh, Stanley was going through some stuff. But at the same time, yeah, it was a huge, huge win. But you've ba- – so basically you've got one game in the in the last uh, – in the last uh, month and a half or whatever with Michigan State to go off of Duke – so not having those big games, it does keep them under the radar a little more, especially with the ACC being so down. I think when they play Louisville, then they're going to kind of get back on the radar a little more. But, yeah, if you don't see a team because they don't have an individual player, which is getting on the highlights all the time, and if you don't see them because they're not playing in big games, I guess that could be a reason why they're going under the radar. But if, they're, if, if anyone who's arguing they're going under the radar based on some sort of respect factor – that's insane to me because, uh, that yeah, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah, Duke's always going to get their respect factor because they're Duke. So you don't have to, you know. Not yeah, I'm not even thinking about it like that. I'm just thinking as a, as a team. I think when you watch them, it's, it's, you can see they're really good. You can also see the weaknesses, and you can also see the fact that they're a lot more talented than the other teams. I mean, they can overwhelm teams like uh, Wake Forest, and they can overwhelm teams like Miami because they're so much more talented, especially as the chemistry develops. So then to say that Duke isn't as talented as past teams doesn't make any sense. Because, because if you look, if you think about last year's team, 
Everyone thinks they were the most talented team, and how could they not win? They weren't, though. They had two of the uh, two of the most talented players ever at Duke in R.J. Barrett and Zion. But if they're not getting contributions uh, from the rest on a consistent basis, then are you really going to call them the most talented team? Or no, I think it's just so focused on the uh, a couple players rather than recognizing that a team a team with more guys can actually provide more value. But then the worry is, do they have guys who can just get a bucket when it's necessary? Because it can come down. A lot of basketball can come down to it, which is who can get a bucket. And with the small sample sizes, that's what the NCAA tournament comes down to. One game, pressure's on. You need someone to get a bucket. Having a bunch of guys who can make a positive impact, that won't necessarily get you a bucket. And that's why, like, the NFL playoffs, the like, the Ravens lost yesterday, and everyone's like, how did that happen? Because one-game samples are wild, and that's just how it is. And even in the NFL, where they have home games in the playoffs, it still can happen that way. So when you have the NCAA tournament, and literally anything can happen in a one-game sample, you can go both ways with this in terms of, yeah, Duke has more guys who can make an impact, but do they have someone who can like absolutely dominate when you need so that's what I find interesting about this team. I think you could go both ways on that. Yeah, I think so. And, um, I mean, Trey Jones is obviously the best we have at creating something off the dribble right now. Stanley looked pretty good last night off the dribble. He did have – I think he got his pocket picked one time. Um, but he, in the last couple of games, he's he's had some nice dribble drives. And uh, next step will be to see if he can – pass out pass off those drives as, as well as as well as score but but yeah the the third the third score is sort of a question mark but it's always I think we've usually had a third score we just don't know who the third score is so that's well, either I'm not even like, sure who the first and really second scores are <laughs> well I mean <laughs> you would say Vernon Carey but like you know he's had a couple of low scoring games um and then, you know, I I think Trey Jones is either the number one or the number two, but I don't I don't know. There's a it's a lot. This is a strange team to watch. So. No, I think it just depends on situation to situation. That's why I said I mean Duke's had eight guys who or eight times they've had more than uh, fifteen point halves, and even that's split up. I think Carey's had two. Um, Trey's had one, Cassius has had two, Hertz had two, and Baker's had one. So I mean, they can get the big explosive games from everyone, but I, I don't, I don't think it matters as much who like is considered the number one, number two, number three, because it can differ at different times. It's just a matter of when you do need that huge play to be made, and the offense is kind of bogged down. Who are you going to? And while I would disagree with you that Trey is the best at creating off the dribble because of the fact that I think he is given more help. He's given a lot more high screens and pick and roll is set up, whereas Cassius, he's been treated a lot of times more like the point guard has been treated in recent years where kind of you go to the uh, corner and kind of stand there during half-court offense. I think once Wendell Moore went out, I think now Moore is being put on Cassius' shoulders, which I think is great for him. Like, I think he can handle it. And now he's making more plays, and hopefully he will be uh, given more more high screens 
to show what he can do because it's tough to just create ISO with no help at all. Or, I mean, those 2015, 16, no, I'm sorry, not 15, but 16 and 17 teams where they would just kind of clear out one side for guys to just kind yeah. of do what they wanted. I mean, that is something you could never do with this team. And at the end of Stephen F. Austin, that's something we saw, which was a huge problem where there was nothing going on on offense. There was no plays. There was no sets. There was nothing. So guys were just being forced to ISO, and it was all on Trey's shoulders. And it didn't work out. And at that point in time, I do think Stanley has improved since then. But, I mean, he, like, he really wasn't able to do anything off the bounce. So you got to give guys help. you got to give them high screens. you gotta, you got to set up more plays. And I think that's just something where – as much as every all the players are learning within game to game in game, I think Kay's learning about this team as well. You can coach for forty years as he has done, but still every single team you're learning about what benefits them most. And I think what Kay's doing, which I think most impresses me this season compared to others, is he's really he's not forcing them to adapt to what he wants in a team and how he usually runs things he's uh he's generally not always but he's generally adapting to what best fits their skill sets and i think that is huge yeah i, I would agree with that i think you're probably right about the the jones and stanley thing uh trey is usually he's either already on the move and on the fast break or he's getting a screen from somebody the cash is almost every time i've seen cash stanley drive to the basket it's just been one-on-one. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a good point. How do you feel about the uh, defensive rotations? Because that's one of my other concerns. It happened a couple of times last night where they doubled, Duke doubled, and Matthew Hurt or somebody, I think Javin happened to Javin once or twice too, they just kind of get lost on the backside of that double team and they lose a guy cut into the basket. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, that's something I noticed after Tech. I think the double teams are not strong enough, but at the same time, I, d- I do think I-, I recognize what you're saying as well, how there are guys just kind of standing alone underneath the basket. There's somebody else who it's their responsibility to rotate over. So I think it depends on situation to situation, but the communication needs to be strong and I don't think – I think the narrative is that uh, opponents are getting so much dribble drive. I don't think that's the case at all. I think usually it is after someone – it's when somebody has – it's when a ball handler has the ball. They're being double teamed by Duke, and they're just the, – there's a wide open passing lane. They're able to find somebody alone under the basket, and it, just, it shouldn't be that easy. So I think that's – I would say it's a little bit more on the double team preventing such an easy pass because when – obviously, I mean, the basic elements of doubling – Somebody's going to be open, um, and it just needs to make it more difficult. I, there's going to be some times where you take that risk, and you just you're going to get burned occasionally. But it's happened more often than we'd like. But at the same, I mean, Duke's among the top teams in the country at defending the pick and roll, and uh, I don't. I think that it's just they can be more aggressive than they've shown. Sometimes maybe it's that Kerry doesn't want to pick up. Uh, an unnecessary foul, so he'll just kind of put his hands up rather than be more aggressive on the double. I think Hurt and Jack White, sometimes they do get caught in no man's land a little too much. Especially, I think Hurt, his instincts are still kind of uh, being developed. I think uh, he's getting used to being down low. I think it's really interesting because Corey Alexander, he loves every time he's announced a Duke game, 
he'll give shouts out to Hurt for his physicality, and I don't know what he's seeing because, I mean, I watch Hurt every game, and it's like that's his biggest issue is the non-physicality. I think he has great offensive rebounding instincts. He's picked up a a bunch of offensive rebounds, but in terms of uh, his defense down low, his defensive rebounding, and it's just the overall physicality and the instincts, I think he's still growing into it and he's lacking, and that's why – he doesn't get huge minutes because on defense, there's still a lot of times when he can be a bit of a, of a, uh, he can hurt them a, a little bit. So I think it'll be interesting to see how or if he develops throughout the rest of the season. I think with his body frame, it's a question. So uh, I would say generally no. So he just has to be smarter in terms of when he's more aggressive down low and just get that early box out. So, you're not going to have to be fighting for a guy for a 50-50 shot at a ball. I mean, stuff like that, just the little things he could do to prevent just kind of being manhandled. Yeah, I think the early box out, I mean, that's that's fundamental right there. So that that would help. But um, I, I'm really not sure I want to see him down low unless he's got a mismatch, like against, he's a, against maybe a small forward or somebody a little, a little undersized is switched onto him. Then maybe he can bump him a couple times and, and hit that that nice turnaround shot that he has from from ten or fifteen feet. Yeah, but, here's, a, here's a stat real quick. Um, I believe uh, there's 353 teams in the country. So Ken Palm, they actually do uh, by percentage um, in terms of uh, defensive rebounds, offensive rebounds, points, all that stuff. So. In terms of defensive rebounds, Duke's power forward position is ranked number 350. In terms of offensive rebounds, Duke's power forward position is ranked number 328. Who's playing the power forward mostly for Duke? That would be Matthew Hurt. So that's why it is so important. This isn't just a bash on Hurt. It's worth actually pointing out how impressed I am of, I mean, like uh, like Cassius, like, he is not afraid to get in there and, and get physical. Trey, Trey's, I, I think he led Duke in rebounds against Georgia Tech. He got a bunch. He got, uh, I'm, this is just a guess. I'm not sure right now. I think he got a bunch against uh, Wake Forest. But uh, actually, let me see here. Trey. Against Wake Forest. He got three. Okay, so uh, one offense, two defense. But either way, he's in there. He's, he's absolutely unafraid or not even he's he's more than willing to get in there and fight for the ball so the team defensive rebounding is huge and that might actually be at times why they have struggled at not getting a lot of transition um because there you can't leak out as much if you have to have everyone in there getting uh to rebound so that might be a cause of some of duke's transition problems but at the same time you have to. I think it's really worth appreciating the fact that everyone's in there fighting for it because Hurt is not the most physical. And also, transition has really improved in the last four games. They were ranked, I was telling yeah. you before we started officially recording, they were ranked like 320. The bottom, the bottom barrel level came after Brown. They were ranked somewhere about 320 in uh, transition, lower if you discount. I mean, Central Arkansas, they just got a whole bunch. That was kind of stat skewer. In the past four games, they've raised that up to, they're about, uh, I think, 175 right now, about, ha- about halfway, uh, about, about half, uh, whatever, like in the middle of the rankings. So they have been really good against the ACC teams recently. And 
in terms of how, why that's occurring, it's because they're not kind of chucking threes as much off of rebounds. They're being a lot more judicious in the three-point shooting. And also, as, mu- as much value as he provides, I think when- Wendell Moore did struggle to finish. He struggled to finish at the rim, and he was often a guy who was in transition, kind of missing some shots at the rim. So I think that's part of or the main reason why Duke's improved in transition. And with uh, Vernon, especially the last two games, not able to get as much uh, kind of free points inside and offensive rebounds leading to second chance. And even Duke, they haven't been great at free throw shooting, to put it lightly. So I think being able to get more transition has been has been a big part of, I think, something to take away as a, as a big positive. So do you think it would help um, our transition if Hurt was the one like, kind of like designated to leak out? I was actually thinking that the other day, and I think that's a very, very valid point. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it could, it absolutely could. As, as long as they get the, like, I mean, I guess like Trey and Cash is combined to take Hertz guy, um, on the, uh, well, boxing out or something. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's always easier said than done. I mean, there's one guy who kind of on Twitter, he like DMs me like, how come, uh, how come Duke doesn't have guys leak out as much? Like how come Vernon Carey doesn't run the floor as much? And I'm just like, cause Vernon, I mean, he's basically in there by himself, like kind of patrolling the paint. I mean, it's his responsibility. Plus he's just, he's not as quick footed as someone like, I mean, Javin, he's able to really get out there. I mean, he's just, he's quicker than most bigs. And that's something that among all the things that Javin does, which I love, I think Javin, he's just such an alpha glue guy. I think when he runs the floor in transition, I think it just sparks the team. And this team, they can be sparked by a play unlike any team I've seen in a while. I mean, with Zion, when Zion got a dunk, everything kind of, like the world seemed to lift up. But uh, they, they don't have a Zion. Nobody has a Zion. So with this team, like when Stanley's able to get a transition dunk, you can just you can feel the energy lift, and just whenever they can get a big play, because it's tough to always be so efficient in half court. They have been very efficient, and I think that's something that's going under the radar, just how efficient they've been in half court offense. I mean, their shooting is remarkable. They've been a great three point shooting team all season in half court offense. The, the outside shooting, the perimeter shooting, when it's when it's gone down at times, usually it's been because it's occurred in transition. So what they're doing in half court because they're running more efficient offense because the sets are more creative, I think that's absolutely worth pointing out. But I think it also is worth pointing out that a lot of it occurred because they were running offense through Vernon Carey, who, I mean, it's a guaranteed bucket because he has mismatches against most guys. Now, without Carey having those guaranteed mismatches, I think it's even more impressive how they've been in half court because you need to kind of figure things out and credit K for being creative with that, uh, credit the uh, more efficient offensive transition, and just credit Duke in general. I think Trey, especially the last two games, started really creating off the bounce more. I think he's been – I mean, Trey is one guy. He will never be under the radar. He's been really dictating that uh, half-court offense really well and just being amazing on defense and creating things and combining with – I mean, I've called him and – Cassius, the best defensive backcourt I've ever seen for Duke um, under K. And now with the miss, with the opponents they've played, you can add Jordan Goldwire, who's also a pretty elite defender in the backcourt. So you have those three guys. They are going to be wrecking havoc 
on teams if the teams can't, at least at small forward, get a mismatch to force Duke to at least have uh, to to go with Trey or Cassius or Trey and Goldwire. Yeah, Jordan Goldwire is probably one of my favorite guys on this team. He just uh, well, Joey Baker as well. I love Joey Baker's uh, attitude. He's like almost always the first guy up off the bench to t- congratulate the guys coming into our timeout or a huddle or something. His his body language is fantastic. But Jordan Goldwire, he's just like he just goes about his work and doesn't complain, <laughs> you know. And I every I feel like every team needs some of that. So Duke's got no shortage of those glue guys and Jack White and Javin and Jordan Goldwire. They've got a few that they can fill a lot of different roles and I think that's helping them out a lot this year. Yeah, and I think Goldwire, I mean, in high school oh shoot, I'm forgetting who's the uh I don't know if follow the NBA they the Cavs point guard, I think he played for Alabama. Um Colin Sexton. Um yeah. Goldwire, I mean he played against Colin Sexton a bunch of times in high school. It's not like he was playing against this like low level competition in uh-huh. Georgia. Yeah, so it's not like he was overwhelmed by anything. He, I mean, I've compared him a lot to, I, I would say he is a more skilled Tyler Thornton. And I think he can provide insane value in, in uh, certain situations and perhaps more in others. And I think the matchups have allowed that to be so. I think there will be games when there would be other guys I would prefer, but that's in no way anything negative about Goldwire. Um, so I, I think he absolutely has been fantastic this season in every possible way. He's even hidden some shots. So, and I still don't understand why teams will like, if he's driving to the basket, like teams will like help over on him, like to defend his shot at the rim. Like, I don't understand why teams are doing that. Like, it's kind of like Wojo driving. Like, why would you, why would you help over, like force him to actually prove he can make it? I don't know if he's made like any shot at the rim off a drive. So yeah, I think, I think as teams scout him more, because last year he kind of played in spurts but not consistent, I would say they're going to force him to pass. Same way, like a, like a Greg Paulus type or Tyler Thornton, guys like that. But right now, he's actually even creating off the bounce because of the way teams are playing him. So props to him. He's doing a great job. I think I think some of that goes back to the depth that Duke has this year. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure the coaches are, are scouting these guys, but it's hard. I think it would be hard for the players – to be disciplined when, you know, two minutes ago you were guarding Alex O'Connell and now you have to guard Jordan Goldwire for two minutes and then you got to guard Wendell Moore for two minutes. And, you know, it's kind of hard to stay disciplined on what that guy's tendencies are when you're not going against him for an extended period of time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's what, that's why, again, when Duke, when they're able to kind of try different things out within the games and each lineup they put in has that chemistry – because early on in the season, you didn't know if they would. They were still learning each each other and where another person likes the ball, where another person was on defense. I mean, especially defensive uh, communication, that is the toughest to develop the chemistry. So I think right now it has uh, it's improved a ton. And I mean, even O'Connell, like it's, it's always a dangerous thing to kind of just look at steals or look at blocks for players and try to get an overall perception of uh, how they're playing because – Let's, if somebody has like a bunch of steals, it doesn't necessarily mean they played a great game on defense. It could just mean they gambled and they it paid off a couple times. So O'Connell, he has made some big plays. He's still struggling at other times, but I think he's at, at the very least much better 
on defense than he was not only last year and the year before, but early on this year. I think he's better, and I think the communication helps because similar to uh, similar to a guy like J.J. Redick in the NBA, you can learn how to play team defense without being a negative for your team, without having to be an elite defender. And there's other guys who can really create havoc. So as long as as long as O'Connell doesn't get burned, then then he's he's fine. And he actually has come up with some huge steals. So I think uh, his defense is actually it's it's more than okay. And Baker, he can he can still be a little foul prone, but I think he can be trusted mostly. And it was great to see him get back on track by hitting some uh, bombs as well. I, I think part of the reason, and. It, you know, I have no proof of this, but I think part of the reason Baker is foul prone is because, like, the refs don't believe that he's athletic enough to make the play that he made. And I think that happened with Javon Delorier a little bit early in his career, too. Like, they're just like, he can't do that. And, like, well, he just did it. Like, that wasn't a foul. <laughs> and, of course, Javon's had his moments where, you know, he just, like, ran over a guy, too. But I think, like, I've, I really like Baker on defense. He's not the most fleet of foot, but he's surprisingly solid on that end of the floor. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had my doubts about Baker's defense immediately. And I, I said, like, if he's going to, like, when Cassius went out against uh, Winthrop, I, I, I was worried that, like, how would ba- Baker's offense wasn't a concern to me, but his defense would be something. Then I went back and rewatched Winthrop. And while well, Winthrop is Winthrop, but they, he was he was able to guard pretty much every position. There was examples of him guarding um the, uh, the point guard, the shooting guard, small forward, even the big at times, that was never an issue in terms of him being overwhelmed by physicality or not moving his feet well enough. So I think that's great. I think he can get a little over-aggressive. I think some of these guys, it's just the natural instinct to kind of swipe down. I think yeah. that will always be called, and I think Javin, he uh, gets called for that on occasion. But it's also, they're just they're, those are two players, which I love, but they're very animated when they play. Yeah. And that can kind of get the ref's attention, even if you don't actually foul. It can make the refs feel like you just because there's so much movement going on that who knows? I mean, this is just, I mean, you said you're not basing on anything. I'm not either. Just who knows? But to, I'd say getting a ref's attention is generally not a great thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that could, that could possibly be a cause. Yeah, it always makes me laugh when, especially post players, they swipe down and then stick their hands straight back up in the air again, like they didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you did, I mean that that even attracts more attention. I mean, if you're gonna swipe down, just swipe down. I think actually Carey early on the season that he moves his feet really well. It was when he swiped down that's when that's when he would start picking up some fouls. So he's get he's getting better at uh, at not doing that. And uh, yeah, again, as you said, the the kind of the role players. I mean, starring in your role. That's what Kay always talks about. I mean, yeah. Jack White, just to be able to provide those couple minutes against Georgia Tech, providing great value, I mean, that was huge, even if it's not a ton. I mean, Jack White is someone who, both last year and this year, he was able to play big minutes early on while other guys are kind of learning and developing, and then his minutes will go down, but it still doesn't mean that's a negative on him. It's just other guys who are more talented, they will get the time. But when he's in there, he still provides a big impact. And unlike last season, when – well, actually, this is kind of around the time that it happened. But he's hitting he's hitting threes right now, at least enough to make the defense respect him. I was trying to think. I think last year – when was the uh, – when was the Syracuse, Syracuse game? game? Yeah, I, I can't remember, but – Yeah, actually, it was, it was around the time because I think um, – 
Yeah, Florida State was the twelfth, and then the next game against Syracuse, whenever that was, that 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 was the uh, that that was the big game when he went zero for ten. So it was around this time. So let's see how he does. Um, I, guess I, I guess for at least the next uh, stretch of games. But I think what he's provided is huge. And Javin, Javin is somebody who I've said this a million times. He will not be appreciated until he's gone, and I hate that because what he provides is just. His improvement throughout Duke, his his enthusiasm, his effort level, and just all the little things. I mean, his passing is fantastic. His as as long as you don't throw it into him, like don't throw it into him in the post to make a move. Like when whenever that happens, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what do you expect from him? So, but everything else he does, the value of what he brings is just unbelievable. I mean, even last year, you look at the stats after the season in terms of. Uh, the on-off with other lineups on the floor. I mean, every single player, when they were on the floor with Javin, they did better just because of all the little things he provided that may not show up in the stat sheet every game. I mean, Javin's an all-timer for me. I mean, I love what he provides for Duke. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think he's quite as skilled as Emil Jefferson was, but it's reminiscent of Emil Jefferson for me. And Emil Jefferson is one of my favorite players of the decade, probably. I just... I mean, he definitely was an underrated Duke guy, even probably by the fan base. Uh, but the Javin kind of reminds me of that. He's athletic, and he just does the dirty work. And he's a he's a talker, and he's intelligent. He plays the game intelligently. I don't think you can can't really put a value on that. And the one weakness of his game is probably, or not the one weakness, but you know, the one thing maybe you would ask him to do a little bit better is his post up, especially since Carey's only playing 20 minutes a game. It'd be nice if, if you could rely on Javin to, to score on one-on-one posts every once in a while. But Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, but at the same time, I think when uh, when he's in and Carey's not, I think that does provide more space in the lane. And it's kind of like uh, when... When Jaleel Okafor, when he would be subbed out in 2015, and all of a sudden it looked like Duke, Duke's offense was running more freely, that's sometimes what can happen when uh, Carey's out. And it doesn't mean they're better without Carey. It doesn't even mean they were better without uh, Okafor. It just means it's they're able to do something different. And I don't know, maybe some teams, they would like to just keep running the same thing all game no matter who's in there. But I do think there is a big benefit to being able to change things up. And I think that's when, like, Stanley, uh, he's able to get good. That's when he got going versus Georgia Tech when uh, Javin was in there and there were some more open lanes. So I think there's huge benefits to just being able to uh, play different styles and use different guys who play with different styles. So uh, I, I would say I would agree with you, but at the same time disagree. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, like, the Virginia Tech game is kind of proof of that. We We played one way throughout the first half and struggled and – then, you know, Coach K just went with an entirely different formula in the second half, and it worked out great. <laughs> so, Yep. Okay, so to kind of finish things up, so um, we got – let me is, – is Clemson – is that the third team Duke plays immediately after beating Carolina? Hold on, they because the, they played Waff, – Wofford beat Carolina. Georgia, Georgia Tech. Tech beat Carolina. Yeah, this is a third – man, Carolina is uh, – yikes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whoever does, I'm sure everyone knows, but they they lost to uh, they lost to Clemson at home, which broke the uh, 
I don't even know how many games, but it was, I mean, Clemson had never won at Carolina. And this is now, I think, three straight games Carolina has lost with it, the, them going into the game. The next game that they that Roy won would be passing Dean Smith. So he's 0 for 3 trying to pass Dean Smith. At this point, I don't, I mean, I would probably, if, if I was, if I was a betting man, I would say it's under 50% that Cole Anthony returns. I just don't. I don't know why you would at this point, unless if he wants to, great for him. I'm not saying whether he should or shouldn't, but I'm just not sure the reason to, unless it's just because he feels he owes it to his team or he just wants to ball. I mean, if he's healthy enough to play, he's going to be playing officially or unofficially. So why not play with your team? I mean, if he does, good for him. But I don't know, man. With this talent and with with the opponents focused in on him every game, I mean, that's... Carolina, you just don't see him like this much in terms of the talent level, and it's weird because, I mean, at 500 right now, I don't know if they'll make the NIT, and that's a crazy thing to say. Their next game is against Pitt, and they already lost to Pitt once at home. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you got and you got Virginia, who Virginia is now. This, how about this stat? They are 0-4 when allowing more than 56 points. Like 56 points is not like a huge number. So, I mean, to be 0-4 when allowing more than 56, it's just, I mean, as, as I think I, I mentioned last pod or the pod before, with, without having a guy, uh, what's his name? Um, the point guard last year. I always forget his name for some reason. Um, Jerome? Huh? Ty Jerome? Yeah, with, without Ty Jerome, because, I, I mean, I think Kyle Guy, he, had, he went at the, I don't think his value could have been higher after the NCAA tournament and um, DeAndre Hunter, obviously. But Ty Jerome, if you put him on this team, it's just so they just don't have the offense. I mean, that's what it comes down. They just because again, fifty six points. I mean, that's not a lot to score where it would be that big a concern where you can't win a game if the other team scores more than fifty six. Yeah, they. Uh, I mean, I think you were talking about this in your last podcast episode. Uh, the ACC is kind of down this year. Um, and North Carolina was obviously relied upon or was going to the season was supposed to be a top three or four team in the conference. And Virginia certainly was too, but they, uh, I mean, you're not supposed to feel bad for North Carolina, but you kind of feel bad for them. Cause like, what are they supposed to do? <laughs> They've had three, what do they have? At least three injuries in the, in the backcourt now. And yeah. one of them isn't coming back. This season, Harris, I don't think it's coming back. And then we don't know what is going to go on with Cole Anthony. But, yeah, if they're less than 500 in February or whenever he's supposed to come back, it would make sense. Like, I wouldn't blame him for not coming back. I wouldn't think any less of him. Yeah, I mean, the ACC is just – they're lacking on on offense. And, uh, I mean, that's – I mean, Duke's schedule is pretty beneficial in terms of uh, where they play – Louisville and Florida State at home. I mean, Virginia on the, on the road. I mean, NC State, I think they play twice. But uh, wait, do they play NC State twice? I don't even know. Um, oh, no. Hold on a second. Uh, let me let me see here. Um, NC State, no, they, they just play them. They play them away on February 19th. Oh, they do play them twice. Yeah. yeah they play them away on February 19th and home on the 2nd. And NC State, you can almost, I mean, it's almost guaranteed they'll be um, a bubble team. So uh, that that's kind of they could go either way, 
Virginia, I don't even know. I mean, if they keep heading in the opposite direction, who knows how their NCAA tournament prospects will look. So, I mean, you got Florida State and you got Louisville. I don't know if any other team is guaranteed besides Duke and AC, and that's just kind of crazy. So, yeah, I mean, they, they've uh, they've fallen off a lot. I mean, I mean North Carolina, they, it's, it's tough to even see them run offense. I mean, here, here's a crazy – North Carolina – on uh, long twos on <coughs> offense, they actually they uh, they they uh, in terms of the share, they have shot the most. They they shoot thirty eight point two percent of their shots on long twos, and they, on uh, they also they are ranked I think sixth in threes. So I mean they're shooting like it doesn't even make sense their stats. I mean the bottom line is they're not good at any of it, but like why are you shooting so many long twos? And uh, I don't know what you're doing. I, I don't know. I, I just – it's it's tough. Actually, no, they're 13 in uh, in threes. So I don't know. I mean, it, it, yeah, I, I, I like it the most when North Carolina and Duke are both elite. That's just me. Like I don't really get pleasure in seeing them down because it, what does that mean? It means the Duke-Carolina game is not going to be – as hyped and I always want that to be hyped and I you can want to beat your rival as much as possible with I believe it it is possible to do that without hating your rival but I understand most people think differently and that is what it is um last thing you okay here's something that'll get everyone to hate me um I think I'm the only one in the world I don't like the Duke Gothic jerseys man that would I don't know maybe like maybe I'm just kind of classic jersey type of guy i mean there were some bad ones back in the day like i remember like cherokee parks i saw wearing like an awful one uh in, in one of his years but like i don't know it's just like it doesn't look like a duke jersey and i guess if it's just for a special occasion fine and i will say i got in i got so much pleasure out of hearing jay billis use words like drip when the, when the Duke released their uh, official video announcing the, the jersey. Because, I mean, Jay Bills, when he says that, it, he has so much self-awareness. He knows exactly how he sounds, and he's not trying to sound cool. He knows how corny he sounds, and I just love it. So he's saying, like, drip and dog and all that stuff, and it's amazing. But, I mean, hey, 99.999% of fans, players, everyone, they love it. That's all. I'm not a big fan, and uh, that just that'll put me on an island. And I'm okay with that. It doesn't mean I hate them. It's just it doesn't look like a Duke jersey, and I don't know. I, I like it to look like a Duke jersey. I guess that's the bottom line. I, I kind of liked it. Um, at first, I, I didn't, wasn't sure I cared for the navy coloring. Like, why couldn't you just go with, like, traditional Duke blue? But, I, I mean, I, I do kind of like them. Um, for me, like, the worst, the jersey I like the least for Duke is probably their, the ones – that like in the Mason Plumley years, where they had like the weird gray pattern on the back of them, I wasn't really wasn't sure what that pattern was supposed to be, but you could see like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I could find a picture of it and send it to you or something. But it's uh, I didn't I didn't really like those because those didn't make any sense to me. But I liked the. So far, I've liked the jerseys this year. The they kind of went with more of a retro style this year and then the gray ones um with the gold trim were pretty cool too they were this earlier this year a couple times yeah i mean i'm, I'm usually like I, I love it when different things are tried but i just I'm, I'm not even sure the point of like why are they keep putting out more jerseys but i guess 
as I guess that makes me an old an old man who's telling people to, to who's telling everyone to get off my lawn. So I understand how I come off right now, and I just want to say like I don't hate anything. It's just it's not something I was that into. It doesn't look like a Duke jersey, and uh, yeah, get off my lawn. So anyways, uh, so they got uh, Clemson and and Louisville coming up, as I mentioned last pod. Uh, last season around, like, as soon as it started, I said the true season will begin January 12th against Florida State. I think we could, uh, that game kind of proved me correct. At the beginning of this season, I said Saturday, January 18th. Louisville, that's when I would say the true season begins. So we will see. But uh, I don't t- I don't really believe trap games exist. I think players are locked in for everything. I mean, there's unconscious aspects which may make them look forward to Louisville, but at the same time, I don't think they will be taking Clemson lightly at all. So I think it's kind of annoying that they had to travel uh, down to Georgia Tech, come back to Wake, and then travel again down to Clemson. But, yeah, I mean, that's just something you got to deal with as a team. So in terms of uh, looking forward to this week, is there anything you're hoping to see or not see, Clemson, uh, Louisville, anything uh, related? Um, I mean... <laughs> I want to see the the defense continue to play well. Um, I'm not. I haven't seen Miami play yet this year. I've seen Louisville a couple of times. You mean Clemson? Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I haven't seen Clemson play yet this year. Um, so I don't really know. I don't know what to expect from from them yet. Um, Louisville, you know, it's kind of be cool to see Jordan Nora. I'm not really sure who's going to be guarding him. I thought earlier in the year it would be Wendell Moore. But now we don't have him, so so it'll be interesting to see that matchup because he's uh, stronger than Matthew Hurt, obviously, and faster than Vernon Carey, probably. Uh, so we'll see, <laughs> we'll see, uh, see what happens with that. Which should be interesting. Yeah, I mean uh, the thing about Wendell Moore is just the versatility he provides can't be equaled by anyone else, and just the development that I think was going to benefit him by the end of the year. Just because they were able to win and win comfortably without him does not mean that I feel Duke is better or doesn't miss him. I think it's really unfortunate that he has uh, that he has to miss this portion of the season, which would have been huge for his development. And I mean, he could he could guard pretty much everyone but the five, and even sometimes the five. I mean, I've compared him to in certain aspects Chris Carwell, and just with that physicality on defense and being willing to guard everyone. But at the same time, I think there's so much positives to take away from Wake Forest and Georgia Tech. They were able to find a way, and no matter how many games they win by a ton, I think this this team still comes down to finding a way because there will be some matchups which are not going to be so comfortable. So I don't think you should be surprised when that happens or anyone should be surprised when that happens. When it does, it is just about finding a way. And I think the biggest thing to take away in terms of recently, two things is number one, their ability to still find ways to score when they're not running through Vernon Carey. And uh, number two, the chemistry. I think the chemistry has really started to come together. And that's why they're, I think, moving. They, this, this team really rotates well, talks well on defense. I think now it's just, it's, Kind of, they're swarming in a way. They're all moving. They're all moving as one, and I think it's just it's beautiful to see, especially on defense, while at the same time recognizing why against some opponents it works 
better than others. So I think the, the chemistry and the ability to find ways to uh, tr contribute on offense without carry, just kind of everyone starring in their own role. <coughs> so, uh, Shane, is uh, there anything you, you want to add, or do you think we covered everything? Because I know it's, it's it can be tough at times to to uh, talk about. I mean, Duke won by a million. So I, I, I want to add one more thing. My boy Buckmeyer, wide open layup at the end. Wide open. He blew it. Trash. Buckmeyer is trash. Like, he needs to improve. He needs to get better. Strip him of his scholarship and kind of – he's not allowed to eat for, for a week straight. That's what I would say. I'm sure that will improve his play. <laughs> Absolutely. Punishment. You, you, need, you need to make – he doesn't, he doesn't have heart. He plays for the back of the jersey, not the front. He doesn't care about his team. Throw him off the team. Throw Buckmeyer off the team. I'm done with him. Yeah, might as well have kept Trayvon Duvall, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's different. Like that, that, that. Like I was, I, I like Trayvon, so uh, or Trayvon. Um, but Buckmeyer, it is a joke. It is a joke. He's my favorite. He's my favorite walk-on. Love that dude. Um, so, anyways, uh, that pretty much sums it up. Duke has uh, Clemson and then Louisville. I'm not sure whether I'll record after Clemson or we'll do another one after Louisville. I'm not sure. Might be with Shane. Might be with Joe. Might be solo. I don't know. Right now, it's kind of up in the air. But Shane, I appreciate you for uh, coming on. This was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate having the opportunity. All right, so everyone can, uh, wherever they listen, whatever platform, rate, review to help others find the podcast. I am Adam Comer for the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I will be talking to you soon.